Uh, Please open up to the book of Ecclesiastes. We are now making our way through Ecclesiastes. It's near the middle of the Bible. It's right after Proverbs. You know where Proverbs is. Um, A lot of you guys maybe are more familiar with Proverbs. Right after that, Ecclesiastes. We will not be going through it as long as we went through Romans. Um, This is a a 12th chapter book, and we are. My goal is to go through it in 12 weeks. uh, Try to tackle a chapter at a time. We'll see how successful we are with that. Uh, But I'm pretty optimistic. Um, (laughs) Did I say that about Romans? Well, I'm feeling especially optimistic. Me too. too. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, you know, as I see McKenna uh, trying to come in late without being noticed, um, it does remind me, I did forget to mention, uh, we we just prayed for the Hawkins family, so this is why I bring this up, is that uh, McKenna does have um, a card uh, for all of you guys uh, to sign. We'll put it in the back. Um, Jamie, please don't leave uh, without taking that card home. Uh, Just a way for us to uh, to share our love with you. Okay, thank you, McKenna. Um, All right, so if you open up to book Ecclesiastes, please. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited for this book. Um, I, I, well, I don't want to steal my own thunder, so I won't say too much about it. Uh, instead, let us just read together uh, the first chapter, uh, and then I'll, I'll pray one last time, and, and we'll, we'll jump in. Okay, so uh, you should be open to the book of Ecclesiastes. We have, we do. Okay, wonderful. Good job, guys. All right, here we go. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. We pray for us before we begin. God, as we approach your holy word, give us humility as we submit to your word. 
Give us understanding as we seek to know your word. Soften our hearts, Lord. Give us ears to hear. Give us minds to understand. I pray your spirit would be changing us. I pray that we would be worshipful. I pray that Christ would be exalted. We ask for your grace in this time. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, for those who who know me, uh, or, well, I guess you all know me, um, but for those who know me maybe a little bit more well, um, you may know that I'm not very good with my hands, as in uh, my occupation would never be something like being a mechanic uh, or a construction worker or anything that requires uh, – Alex, I received an email from you about doing, like, uh, handyman jobs. I appreciate that, brother, but that, <laughs> that is definitely not my gifting. But it's learning, and maybe I'll learn. Thank you. I do appreciate that. Uh, but it, it never has been my strength uh, at all. Uh, and even something as simple as uh, pulling weeds. How many of you guys like to pull weeds? Okay, so a few of you are crazy. How many of you guys do not? How many of you have pulled weeds and do not like it? Okay, most of you. Okay, you understand. It's therapeutic. It's therapeutic. No, I need therapy after. That's what you mean. So, so when I was in junior high, uh, we bought this new house. And it was a new house. By new, I mean like they built it. We were the first people to live in it. And we happened to get a corner lot, which we were very excited about. And this corner lot meant we had a big yard. And so we had this giant backyard with this giant hill. We're like, oh, cool. What a great big backyard we get to enjoy. No, we did not enjoy it. What happened was it did not take long when that huge backyard and this huge hill was just filled, just covered with weeds. And it was one like Friday night. My dad says to me and my brother, tomorrow morning you're waking up early and you're pulling all those weeds. Oh my goodness. So Saturday morning, we go out there and we start pulling weeds. And I'm telling you, I, I, I've been, I'm pulling weeds for, it's been two, three hours. And I have pulled like a one by one square in the backyard. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. This is going to take forever. And we're out there all day, all day. And by the time I get to like one fence... I look back, and, like, all the weeds are already growing back. Like, it, it doesn't stop. And finally, like, when we finish, I know by next week, sure enough, all the weeds are back. And so next Saturday, we're pulling all the weeds again. And this went on and on and on. And I remember feeling like, what is what is the point here? Like, why are we doing this? This will never end. Pulling all these weeds, it's, it, it's pointless. It's meaningless. Like, it's just going to come back up, and I have to pull it again. Have you guys ever have you, have you ever felt that way with weeds before? Anyone else? Back me up. Thank you. Okay, some of you guys know. Have you guys ever felt like that with anything else? School? You guys go, okay, wow, everyone. Wow, okay. I noticed mostly just the homeschool people. I'm just pointing it out. Uh, but anyways, maybe you felt that some things in life uh, are just pointless. Maybe you felt some things in life are meaningless. Maybe you felt that life itself is pointless that living life itself is meaningless if so you you have similar feelings as the author here of ecclesiastes first off who who is the author who who wrote ecclesiastes because it doesn't say right here his name in fact the author of the book right at the beginning he calls himself the preacher the son of david and he says king in jerusalem so he doesn't identify his name. However, based on these clues and other clues, many believe that the author is King Solomon. And part of those clues is verse 1 when he says that he's the son of David, king of Jerusalem. And verse 12 where he says he's been king over Israel in Jerusalem. 
Solomon really is, in my opinion, the only eligible person to meet these requirements, as he is the only son of David who was king while united Israel was still in Jerusalem. Also, the way in which he speaks of his experiences, it matches up with Solomon's life as well. So I do think it is Solomon who's the author, although some don't believe it's Solomon. Some believe that someone else wrote it as like a Solomon-type uh, figure, like they're speaking on behalf of Solomon. And there is some evidence to support this. Um, there's some good evidence, uh, one of which, for instance, is that the language used here seems to be language that's used in a later time period in which Solomon did not live. Um, and the words that were used wouldn't make sense for him to use it, some would say. But overall, I do think there's more evidence of Solomon being the author here. We're going to see more of those evidence as we progress throughout the book. But he calls himself the preacher, he says. He's the preacher. And the Hebrew word here for preacher is kohalith, that he is the kohalith. And this word means uh, a speaker who calls on an assembly, which is where we get the name Ecclesiastes. It's the Greek word for assembly. Now, Kohalith, this preacher, is not like a preacher maybe like we think of today. When he says uh, the words of the preacher, don't think of a preacher like you would think of today that gets him in the pulpit and exegetes a passage, for instance. Kohalith would, would typically would debate. He would debate really with himself uh, some kind of a topic. And he would consider all the different viewpoints and then come to a conclusion. And it is this that he shares with the assembly, his debate with himself. And what is it that Solomon here is seeking to debate with himself? What is it that he's seeking to answer here, that he's seeking to understand? The author, I I believe Solomon, sees the monotony of life and feels as if it's meaningless. Feels as if life is pointless. After trying to find meaning in all different areas in life, he realizes he cannot find meaning and satisfaction in all of these different things. And he concludes, spoiler, that the true meaning and true contentment and true satisfaction is only found in God. Have you ever felt like Solomon? Have you ever felt like, what's the point? What's the point? Why am I just spinning my wheels? Does my life even have a purpose? Is there even reason? Is there even purpose? Is there even a point for me to be living? What am I even doing here? And it can be a genuine struggle, for sure. In fact, the tone of this book is quite depressing at times. Because it just feels like there's no point in life. It's all a waste. It's all empty. But throughout the book, we will see that in Christ, it is not empty. But there is fullness and there is completeness found in living a life for Jesus Christ. And tonight, in this first chapter, we will see that life apart from Christ, a life without Christ, it leads to frustration, emptiness, and discontentment. And the author shows that this is evident through really two things, the endless cycle of life, and the exhausting pursuit of intellectualism. And he's going to show many other pursuits throughout the book that will inevitably leave us empty as well, but tonight we'll focus primarily on these two. But we're going to have three main points. The first is going to be the futility of life, just the overview of the kind of introducing the book, and then the futility of life's 
cyclicality, and then the futility of life's intellect. Okay, that's where we're going tonight. Three main points. I'm not doing subpoints tonight, so if you're taking notes, uh, don't wait for them. You'll be waiting a long time. Okay. So first, the futility of life, verses one through three. The futility of life. Can you guys see that in the back? Jeff, you okay? All right. Solomon starts with with really the motto, I think the theme of the book. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now the word for vanity here is the Hebrew word havel. He uses it around 38 times in this book. It's a lot of times for the short 12 chapter book. And the word itself, havel, or translated vanity, it means breath or, or, or vapor. It's the idea of something that's fleeting, such as your breath. So, for instance, like when we go to winter camp, all right, when you go somewhere cold, every time, this how everyone does this. You can't deny it. When it's cold, what do you do? You go, and then and you just kind of see the breath go away. And then every once in a while, we go like this. Like, like, like oh, we're cool. I'm smoking. Like, okay, that's stupid, right? But we all do it. We all do it, right? But, but, but the idea that you see it, right? Like, like it just, you see it for a moment. You see your breath just for a moment, and then it just it vanishes. It's gone. Just quickly. Boom. Gone. That's his word, havel. That's his word, vanity. It, it, it means breath. It means vapor. And he says all is vanity. That all is fleeting like a breath. In fact, he says vanity of vanities. He says havel of havels. What this does is it takes the Hebrew superlative form, much like the holy of holies. Right, which is the most holy place on earth. Or the king of kings, or the lord of lords. Solomon's saying, vanity of vanities. He's saying life is as fleeting and as meaningless as possible. Now this word havel, it's not unique to Ecclesiastes, although Solomon uses it a lot. It's not unique to this book. It's used elsewhere in the Old Testament. And it can often be used to describe the worthlessness and the meaninglessness of idols. And Ecclesiastes preaches a similar message. So many people, Solomon included, and he'll share his experience on this, but so many people seek to find satisfaction and meaning in the things of this world. And in doing so, they create idols in their hearts. They seek to find satisfaction and meaning in the creation instead of the creator. I've heard it put really well. I've heard it put this way. A good thing turned into a God thing becomes a bad thing. Did you get that? I'll say it again. A good thing turned into a God thing becomes a bad thing. Have you turned a good thing, school, grades, a relationship, fun, success, friendship, Have you turned a good thing into a God thing? Where it becomes your life. That you are consumed by it. It is your everything. That you must have it. And it has become a God thing. It was meant to be a good thing. And indeed at one time it was a good thing. But it was never meant to be a God thing. Have you created idols in your heart? It is Havel. 
It is vanity. It is worthless. It is meaningless. It is fleeting. These things were never meant to be worshipped as gods in your life. They were meant to be good things. Not God things. They have now become a bad thing. Now he also introduces another phrase that occur, occurs several times in this book. Under the sun. He says in verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And this phrase he uses around 29 times in the book. Under the sun. So it's important for us to understand what Solomon is saying when he says under the sun. When he says under the sun, he's talking about an earthly perspective. Under the sun, an earthly perspective. Does this life have meaning? Does this life have purpose? If this world, if this life is all there is, if there is no God, if there is no afterlife, then he concludes that all of this is meaningless. He's asking the question, what do we gain by all the work that we do here on earth under the sun? What do we do by gain by doing all this work under the sun? If this is all there is, then what's the point? It all vanishes. There is no true profit to our toil because it's all going to be gone one day, he says. Indeed. Life without God is futile. It is chasing after the wind. We'll talk about that later. You spin your wheels trying to obtain so much, but in the end, you are left with nothing. And so he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Solomon is saying, what are you gaining with all of your work? When it's done under the sun. What are you gaining living for this life? For this world? What are you gaining if you live your life? Not for the Lord. So we must ask ourselves the same question. Let me start with this. What are you living for? What is it that you are living for? I want everyone to think about that in your own life. I want you to think about your own life. Think about your own pursuits. Think about how you spend your time. Think about how you spend your energy. Think about where you spend your money. Think about where you spend all of your thoughts, all of your dreams. What are you living for? Some of you, you, you aren't living for anything. Some of you, you're barely even living. Some of you, I, I, hear, I hear your parents. They try to drag you out of bed at 11 a.m. 11 a.m. The day's almost half gone. And then you play video games from 11.30 a.m. to 11.30 p.m. You're barely living. And some of you, you toil hard. Some of you, you wake up at 4 a.m. and you start school. Until 11 p.m. <laughs> and you toil hard, you work hard. But to what end? Why do you work hard? What are you gaining? Do you work hard for your own glory? For your own gain? Solomon says, one day it will vanish. It's vanity. 
Solomon will challenge us not to live for this world, but to live our lives for the glory of God instead. Now, I do want to be clear. Solomon is not saying that everyone needs to be in full-time ministry, working for a church, being a preacher, doing the, that. That's how we said you must be employed by the church. No, thank God not everyone is employed by a church. Thank God for doctors. Thank God for construction workers. Thank God for garbage men. Thank God for stay-at-home moms, for engineers, for musicians, for insurance agents, for accountants, for all these people. Thank God for these people. Solomon is not suggesting that these people should no longer exist, that no one should spend their lives in these other occupations, and that everyone needs to be working in a church. That's not what he's saying. God has gifted us in various ways, and we should be good, good stewards of these gifts. But the question is this, how are you, doctor? How are you, garbage man? How are you, stay-at-home mom? How are you, whatever you are, how are you using your gifts, not for your own gain and glory, but for God's? How will you use your life, whatever that might look like, for God's glory and for his kingdom? Might that mean that you need to make sacrifices and changes in your life? Maybe. Are you willing to do so? Will you do so? Do not waste your life living under the sun. So that's he kind of sets up his book here, The Futility of Life. Now we look at two main ways of that that we see he outlines. The first is this, the futility of life's cyclicality, verses 4 through 11. The futility of life's cyclicality. Verses 4 through 11. Solomon begins his argument and his explanation by looking at the cycles of nature. I don't know if anyone caught that when we were reading it. He starts by talking about the frailty of life. Look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Solomon gives example of how the earth is on repeat. And yet, generations will come, and that generation will go. And we cannot, cannot outlive these cycles. So he gives us different cycles. The first is the sun. Verse 5. He says, the sun rises, and the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The sun does the same thing every Every day. Did you know that? It rises in the east and it works all day to get to the west where it will set. But then tomorrow it will rise in the east. It will work all day to get to the west where it will eventually set again. And every day the sun will do this. It will rise in the east. It will work all day to get to the west. And then it will set. And it looks like it's going somewhere. Look at there goes the sun. But really it's just going in an endless cycle. Rising in the east. Setting in the west. And then he mentions the wind. Verse 6. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. It sounds like Dr. Seuss. And on its circuits the wind returns. The wind is not much different. 
Instead of east and west, the wind goes north and south. It goes round and round and it returns back to its normal circuit. Over all the centuries, the wind continues to spin in its endless cycles. Now, there's a lot of activity in the wind. It's working hard. It goes round and round. But in the end, there is no change. It's wind. And then he mentions the waters. Verse 7, all streams run to the sea. But the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Water is constantly flowing, running from the streams to the sea. I mean, you'd think the sea would just be overflowing by now with all the streams of water that pour into the sea. And yet, what is the game? What game has the sea gained? <laughs> Waters keep adding to the sea, and yet the water levels remain the same. There is no net gain. Solomon shows the monotony of life. Life is just full of endless cycles. There is motion in nature, but there's no promotion. Nothing changes. There is no gain. It is endless cycle after endless cycle. And listen to what he says in verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. You ever feel that way? Do you ever feel like you're just living in an endless cycle? For what game? To what end? The sink is full of dirty dishes, and I gotta wash them and scrub them and Put them in the dishwasher and then empty the dishwasher after it's dry just to see the sink full of dishes again. Mom, why do I even have to wash them? I remember when I was a kid, I told my mom, let's just get disposable. <laughs> she didn't like that. Or the laundry. Jaden, you live in my house. You know, <laughs> you know what the laundry's like. Your laundry. I'm not even talking about your laundry. Right? When I'm, the hamper is full. Put it in the washer, put it in the dryer, fold your clothes, put it back in, just to see the hamper full again. So just go on and on. It's a never-ending cycle of laundry, homework, schoolwork, whatever it is, it never ends. And maybe in your school, maybe in your studies, maybe in your jobs, maybe in your, your relationships, maybe in your possessions, and these things... Maybe you seek to find ultimate meaning. You find, seek to find satisfaction in these things. You try to find meaning. You try to find satisfaction in your school, in your job, in your relationships, in your possessions. But in the end, you cannot. And so when you realize you cannot find meaning and satisfaction in this relationship, then you seek a different relationship. When you realize you can't find satisfaction and meaning in this job, you get a different job. When you realize you can't find satisfaction and meaning in this possession anymore, then you buy a new one. But in the end, nothing changes. You're still left unsatisfied. And the grass is always greener on the other side, or so we think. But you can get more money, you can get new relationships, you can get a bigger house, you can get a better job, you can get more toys, you can get whatever it is. But in the end, you will be like the seed, and you will not be any fuller. 
you will continue to feed into it and feed into it. But nothing changes. And so often, I hear teenagers say this. I said this when I was a teenager. Once I get my driver's license, then I'll be free. Look at Alex, right? You're free. Yeah, not really, he says. See, good. You proved my point. We say, I'll be free, and then life will be so much better. See you, Mom and Dad. I'm driving out of here. And then they get it and get their license. And then they say, well, well, once I move out of my house, then, then I'll really be free and happy. That's not. I haven't gone there yet. You haven't gone there yet. <laughs> Watch it. You might. That's not just a teenager thing. Pe- people do not outgrow this. It is an endless cycle. Continuing this story of Alex Jr. <laughs> he says, or we'll just say someone neutral says this. I said, well, what, what, once I go to college, once I get into the college, that my dream college, that I've been working my whole life, literally, like your whole life at this point, like working all my school to get accepted to this college, then I'll be happy. Then things will change. I'll really be happy. Then you get into that college. And you say, well, well, once I graduate and get that dream job, once I finish this and get my job, then things will change and I'll be happy. And then you get that job, and you're working this job. You say, well, I'm lonely, so once, once I get married to the perfect person now that I have a bona fide job, then things will change, and I'll really be happy. And then you get married, and you say, oh, but we want kids. And once we have the perfect amount of kids, then things will change, and I'll really be happy. I just want that perfect family. And then once you have that family, you say, but I, I need a promotion for my job. And so once I finally climb the ladder and I get that promotion, then things will change and I'll be happy because then I'll have all the money that I need. And then you have all that money and you say, but I, I need to buy this and buy that and have this experience and do this with my family. Once I do all that, then things will change. Then I'll be happy. You see, the cycle never ends. And you think, once I get to this point, then I'll be happy. Then things will be different. And you get to that point. And you're just as unhappy. And you're just as unsatisfied. And things are not different. Things are the same. And so Solomon's question is, then what's the point? What's the point? Is there even meaning in life? Nothing changes. Nothing is new. We're not satisfied. In the end, we are all just going to die, and the earth is going to move on in life without us. And the next generation will come in. The sun will rise, and the sun will go down. The wind will blow around, the water will run, and nothing will change, except we will eventually die. So why live? Is there meaning? Is there a point? Will we ever be satisfied? Now remember, all of this is life under the sun. It is life under the sun, but life is different with God. First off, God is not bound by the cycles of nature, right? So let me just talk about these endless cycles of nature. Not God. He's a supernatural God who who is above and who is greater than nature. The sun rises in the east 
and it sets in the west in one day's time. Yes, until God stops the sun like he did for Joshua. The sea remains intact. Yes, until God parts the sea like he did for Israel with the Red Sea and the Jordan River. What about the rain? God stopped the rain for Elijah for three years. And then he turned it back on. God breaks the limits of nature and he works according to his will. You see, we have a God who is above nature. We have a God who answers prayer. We, we have a God who works outside of nature, who's not bound by nature, who, who, who's not bound to a close system of monotonous cycles. So you see, life is not meaningless, Christian. There is true satisfaction in living for the Lord. There is purpose in living our lives on this earth. When we die, our lives are not over. But they've really just begun. So you see, life in Christ changes everything. There is purpose. There's meaning. There's satisfaction in Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? And is your life about him? Or are you stuck in the futility of the endless cycles of life? You don't need to be. Live your life for the glory of God. The last thing we'll look at tonight is the futility of life's intellect. Verses 12 through 18. The futility of life's intellect. Solomon now transitions to his own personal testimony. He was the wisest man to ever live. But even he admits that his wisdom did not bring him the satisfaction that he desired. In fact, in some ways, it made it worse. And through all his pursuits and seeking to find the answer and seeking to find purpose, using his countless resources and all of his wisdom, he says in verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. What's a striving after the wind? What is striving after the wind? Striving after the wind is nonsense. It's craziness. It's futile. I mean, think about it. Next time you go to the park, give it a try. Chase after the wind. Grab a net and try to catch the wind. Try to play tag with the wind. People will think you're crazy. And this is what he's saying, that this pursuit of his, that he's doing, to try to find meaning and satisfaction in this life, he said it's like chasing after the wind. And he shows us two ways in which his wisdom is futile. The first is that even in his great wisdom, he cannot make right what is wrong. Verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Solomon uses the word crooked as a metaphor for sin. That no matter what he does, even with all the wisdom that he has, he cannot make the wrongs of the past right. What has happened in the past has happened. You cannot change the past. When I was graduating high school, I'd just broken up with my girlfriend. Uh, we were together. Did that get a 
gasp. <laughs> okay, it happened. Um, anyways, we had been dating for about a year and a half or so. Um, graduation dropped the bomb. Anyways, uh, and it was weird. Right after we broke up, I just randomly like saw her in random places. Like, and obviously it was coincidence. I'm gonna say that, but it felt weird. It felt creepy. Like I was at Safeway, and all of a sudden she's there. Like I'm at the park, and all of a sudden she's there. Like she's everywhere. And like I'm telling my dad about it. Like, dude, she's everywhere. Like she won't leave me alone. Like I'm scared. Uh, and I was just, I was overreacting. And, and it was one night, like a Friday night. I was at a coffee shop at an open mic night. I'm just there enjoying the music, whatever. And all of a sudden she shows up. I was like, oh my goodness, what the? What is she doing here? And, and my dad was across the coffee shop. So I take out my phone and I go to text my dad. I'm like, dude, I told you, man, she's here. She's crazy. <laughs> and I press send. And right as I said send, my phone, it was like an old flip phone. It said, sending to Amy. And I was like, oh, no, 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 come back, come back, come back. And the text is like gone in the air. And I was like, oh, no. Because I was thinking about her. And I, so I must put in her number instead of my dad's. I was like, oh. And so, then, so then I see, I see her like on the on the other side of the room, and like she gets her phone, she's like, and she's she's like, what? And then she comes over to me. I mean, I said, I literally said, she's crazy. <laughs> and uh, I had I had I had to play it off like, oh, <laughs> isn't that funny? Just joking around. Like it was a really bad cover up, and she, and she, she was very upset. Uh, anyways. As it's sending it, like I'm like, please, like come back, like this text. Or you could just imagine the text floating like through the coffee shop. And I wanted to take it back, but I couldn't. It was too late. Once you press send, it's gone. It's out there. Bye bye. You delete You could not delete it back in 1999. Okay, it's <laughs> not what it was. It's 2009. You weren't even alive. <laughs> Anyways, the point is this. You guys know this. That this was my experience. You guys maybe have experienced similar things. That the things you have said, they've already been said. You cannot take your words back. The things you have done have already been done. You cannot change what you've done. You cannot make straight what is crooked. Have you become frustrated at trying to make straight what is crooked? You can't do it. No matter the effort and the wisdom that you put into trying to straighten what is crooked, you cannot do it. It is futile. It is like chasing after the wind. But Jesus changes everything. We do not have the power to make straight what is crooked, but God has the power to do so. And indeed, he does. God does not change the past. The past has already happened, but God redeems the past. And he redeems our lives, and he makes straight what is crooked. Christian, there is hope in this life with Jesus Christ. You may have sinned greatly, but Christ died for that sin, and you have been forgiven. What was crooked has now been made straight by him. You may have wronged others. Maybe others have wronged you. But God's grace covers that. And he gives you supernatural peace and comfort through the pains, through the difficulties of this life. That even when others have sinned against you, what others meant for evil, God meant it for good. You can know that for all, that, that for those who love God, God works all things together for their good. So Christian, you cannot make straight what is crooked. 
But Jesus can. You see, for the non-Christian, if you're not a Christian here, your past is like an anchor that weighs you down to the depths of the sea. And you feel the weight and you feel the frustration of not being able to escape the past and not being able to fix the past. And your sin will continue to weigh you down. And no matter what you do to try to straighten what you have made crooked, you cannot succeed. And worst of all, you cannot straighten your crooked, sinful, rebellious life against God. There is nothing that you can personally do to straighten your path towards God. But Christ straightens it for us. Christ does the impossible. Faith in Jesus Christ is your only hope to have your crooked path straightened. Will you continue yourself to try to make straight what is crooked? Solomon says it's futile. It's chasing after the wind. Or will you come to Christ, the redeemer of our lives, who can make straight what is crooked? The second thing that he's, Solomon points here is that even in his great wisdom, he's frustrated with life. That gaining all of the wisdom in the world still did not give him satisfaction. In fact, he becomes more frustrated in life. He sought to know it all. Verse 17 says that he knew wisdom and madness and folly. He says, I, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and to know folly. I perceived that this also is but a striving after the wind. He's saying he lived the right way in wisdom and he lived the wrong way in foolishness. Either way, he could not find the answer he wanted and he could not find the ultimate satisfaction he was seeking. I mean, if anyone could find it, it would have been him. And we'll see that throughout this book. In fact, this wisdom only created more problems for him. Look at the very last verse. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Vexation means frustration. It kind of supports the saying, ignorance is bliss. Have you ever heard that saying? Ignorance is bliss. As in, the, the less you know, the happier you'll be. This is true. You should see my four-year-old son, Jericho. I mean, he's just living life, that guy. He's just like, man, things are good. And like me and my wife were like all stressed about this and that. We're like, oh. And he's just like, what's up, dad? You want to have a pillow fight? I'm like, dude, chill. <laughs> he has no problems in the world, no cares. He just is like... All fun, all, like ignorance is bliss. He doesn't know what's going on. I mean, he's not stupid. I'm not saying that. Okay, but I'm saying like he doesn't know like the, the, to the depths of what's going on. So he's just he's chill. He's good. And Solomon's saying, man, the more I knew, the more frustrated I became. As my knowledge increased, my sorrows increased. And there is truth to that. The more we learn, the more we understand. Watch this. The more that we learn, the more we learn what we don't know, right? Like the more we understand, the more we know that we don't understand. Does that make sense? Like the more questions we have, the, the, the more we realize how much we don't know. Like if you study the Bible, like you're really studying the Bible. The more you study it, the more you realize, man, I don't know anything about this book. <laughs> like I just got more and more questions. Even think of all the advancements this world has made. All of our great wisdom. We think it makes our life easier. And in many ways it does. But even more ways, it makes our lives more frustrating, less satisfying, sometimes more depressing. 
while our human intellect has caused great advancements to our society. These advancements have, in a lot of ways, been a leading cause to an increase in depression, antidepressants, suicides, etc. I mean, think of the, the advancements in our technology, let's say, such as cell phones. It's a gift in many ways. We all love our cell phones. But I think a lot of us can see the curse that they are as well. The ways in which they leave us more frustrated and less satisfied. I think this is why it's becoming more common for people wanting to go back to a simpler way of life. To, to, to get, get off the grid. To slow down our advancements, right? Like AI. Everyone's like scared. Like, no, we don't want this. Right? It's a great advancement. But people see. Wisdom will not bring us to satisfaction. Human intellect will not give us meaning in this life. In the end, while there's benefit, it will bring us frustration and sorrow. But where is ultimate wisdom found? Where is ultimate wisdom found? It's found in Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.3 says, In Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You see that? All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge is in Christ. We can seek wisdom on earth, but in the end it will be empty and we will be frustrated. But all wisdom is found in Jesus Christ and he possesses all wisdom and it is trusting in him in all things. Not ourselves, not trusting in our own wisdom, but in the wisdom of Christ. Is there frustration in trusting in man's wisdom? You bet. But there's comfort and peace resting in the infinite wisdom of Christ. Well, vanity of vanities, he says. He starts it off. We'll see that phrase many more times. Vanity of vanities. Solomon says, it's all fleeting. It's all pointless. It's all meaningless. Life is just full of endless cycles. And in the end, we just die. Even with all the wisdom that we can acquire, we cannot solve this problem. If anything, we just get more frustrated and create more sorrows. You ever feel like Solomon? If you are not a Christian, I hope that this book speaks to you. I hope this book shows you your great need for Christ. Because what this book will teach you is that no matter how much money or how much education or how much popularity you may gain in this world, if it is without Christ, it is futile. It is meaningless. You are chasing after the wind. You are seeking satisfaction, but you are left empty-handed. You are seeking to gain something that can only be found in Christ. You will not find ultimate satisfaction, purpose, joy, or meaning. Outside of Jesus Christ. At times you may think you have found it. Only to be proven wrong. And to be disappointed. Once again. My hope and my prayer for you. Non-Christian. Is that you would realize the futility. Of the things of this world. And instead that you would place your faith. In Jesus Christ. And a loving relationship with him. Because that will never perish. And a loving relationship with Jesus Christ, it brings eternal joy and satisfaction and purpose and meaning because Jesus changes everything. If you are a Christian, 
You have been given the gift of eternal life. Now the question is, for you, Christian, the question is this. Are you living your life for the Lord? Or are you living for the things of this world? You have eternal life, yes. You have purpose. You have meaning. Does your life line up with that? Or does it live in contradiction to that? Have you been given citizenship to a new kingdom, and yet you're still living for the old kingdom? Do you confess Jesus Christ? And yet you live for this world and not for him. Are you deceived by vanity fair? It's exactly that. It's vanity of vanities. Christian, do not live for this world, but live for his kingdom. And to live for his kingdom will require sacrifice. It will require hardship. It will require denying yourself, picking up your cross daily and following him. But you can know, Christian, that with confidence, that as you live sacrificially for this uh, for the Lord in this world, it is not futile. It is not meaningless. It is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It's not in vain. Life in Christ and living for Christ is not in vain. It is not vanity. So live sacrificially for him. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, he says. It's true. Unless you have Christ. He is worth living for. Let's pray. Lord God, indeed you are worthy of our lives. And God, there is purpose and there is meaning and there is satisfaction and there is joy found in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would put aside any idols we have in our heart. I pray, God, that we would not live for the things of this world. Lord, I pray that we would see your glory and we'd seek to live for you in all things. God, continue to work in our hearts, we ask, by your grace, even as we discuss these things. For your glory and your praise, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.